we we've got to stop looking at education as like this model of a child's brought into this world as an empty vessel and all of these teachers swoop in to fill the vessel and once the child's done you take a test and if you pass the test you have worth as a human and if you don't well go figure it out mm. you're on your own yeah, yeah yeah um because everybody that i've ever met has a talent has a skill has something amazing about them um and a lot of the time what's amazing about them is something that education doesn't measure it yeah. doesn't teach they they had to develop it on their own and why because those things are uncertain you can't measure vulnerability Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I have been thinking about the music I've been listening to and um I just surprised myself there. I wasn't sure what I was thinking about. But um you know the same 20 years back, the same me or the not the same me, the me wouldn't have been the same about music, right? Because you kind of sold this um idea that you really have to find identity through the bands you listen to and um the 18 year old me was kind of just forming this love affair with heavy metal iron maiden metallica um maybe even iron maiden to a certain extent um but at the same time i had a, uh, my sister at that point was 5 years old and she was listening to sting and the police u2 so you kind of uh, you you kind of go through phases and um i i really like what was hardcore like metallica and uh megadeth to a certain extent but even iron maiden i got iron maiden the dream theater and 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 now uh at 41 i'm just like yeah i'm listening to sia featuring diljit singh hus hus and i'm like yeah i like it so i don't know what that means is it that you're comfortable with your identity so the music totally doesn't have to define it anymore because 2004 or 5 when i was in uh, the us i was hardcore like anti establishment uh, coheed in cambria um uh the used yellow card these these boy bands black nail polish i i had i didn't paint my nails fortunately but i had lip ring and um wearing hoodies own made by volcom which then you found out is owned by nike and you're like yeah fuck the establishment you're like not so much uh pierced my lip and um two days later guys like hey buddy did you get into fashion accident and i'm like it's time for the lip ring to come off because that's a pretty fucking good observation um uh, yeah it's just identity right is such a big thing that we work on and as you get more comfortable with all the things that are the facets of your identity which are comfortable with things you've forgiven things you've forgotten things you've given up things you've taken on you stop looking externally for identity markers the brands of clothes the the cars you drive the the labels that you um you know f- flaunt the food you eat the things you do for fitness where you're seen more importantly working out and partying and socializing and holidaying and all these things and you kind of just say yeah this is basically what it is and i'm cool with it right and for the lo- like for something as simple as for the longest time i never wore half sleeve shirts because it just i just felt like it reminded me of 
an older generation and uh, like it's like a mustache half sleeve uh, shirt and chappals right it reminds you of like oh you you become your dad uh and then now i'm wearing it i'm like yeah i am a dad <laughs> and it's not so much that i become my own dad it's just that i'm cool with it in the sense i i still like to dress up i like to look good in nice clothes but i'm no longer is this are these diesel jeans are these ferragamo shoes or whatever shoes um i would i would i would craze over like are these asic tigers or it it's it's more about do the shoes look good are they comfortable uh, is the color nice is the fit nice and okay cool what brand is it it, it kind of the priority changes and i think the reason i'm thinking about these things is because we we and i'm going to say this out uh to all of you who may be going through your various uh phases in your journey right and i and i always say on this podcast i'm not here to preach or to patronize but it's kind of what i go through i just put out there and if you can resonate with it if some of the stuff uh, you can identify with or some of the things can tips can kind of help you kind of say ha huh, this might help or this might send me in that direction that's the least i can do and one thing i notice is we have a lot of opportunity today to listen to self help uh, material in the form of youtube videos by um people like jay shetty or sadguru or uh podcasts like a diary of a ceo with simon i think simon bartlett that's his name or uh listening to business advice from like say the likes of tim ferris or health tips from andrew huberman or ben greenfield and all these crazy 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 popular podcasts with huge reach and huge following um nutritional podcasts nutritional blogs and uh influencers telling you what you should do or uh, tips to help your life or books like what's her name um tara brack i think she has the radical self acceptance radical self love and all these things are uh some amazing bodies of work which we each in our own way didn't have access to because of whatever accessibility uh, accessibility issues right whether uh, it was not available in a certain format whether it was too expensive whether it was just not there in our region everything now seems to be at our fingertips and i think it's a great time for that uh but think about this some of us most of us are experiencing turmoil and we resort to listening and reading these 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 this these bits of content for um the answers to our problems uh, solutions to the situations we're in and we spend hours sometimes 10 hours a week sometimes more um 80 hours a month sometimes more and yet how many of us take the time to listen to ourselves uh 80 hours a month 10% of that 8 hours can do it. any of us spend time just sitting with our thoughts sitting with our breath sitting with our feelings with our emotions with our memories with our um state and the consequences of the things we decided to do because if you can't look at that as time well spent then i think we're just looking at the whole equation from the wrong side and it is hard to even sit for 10 minutes but we all need even that to be di- directed and determined by an external factor which is a guided meditation app and i'm not saying that these aren't good i think they're great they help to get us started but if we can kind of get to a place where we are looking for so many external things to tell us how to help ourselves and not starting from the place of sitting with ourselves and asking what we actually want and where we are and what hurts and what doesn't and what feels right and what was wrong and what we could have done and what we can do and how we should do it and how we should go about it and who is important and who is not and what person uh, has hurt you and what person has helped you i think that is the biggest place and 
as you guys know, I, I kind of end up bitching social media out and not bitching, but I kind of talk a lot about the negative effects and the side effects and the harm it does have on certain populations and even and on, on all people, depending on how it's used. But I was just thinking, if you look at your Facebook list or you look at your contact list on the phone and look at technology and what it can do in that way by having these lists of people who are in your network, LinkedIn, or let's look at friends and, and acquaintances. And for that, I suppose Facebook is the most, um, the, the most easily accessible list. And instead of looking at the news feed and getting all tied up in knots about how someone had a better holiday or someone is more fit, someone's more rich, someone's happier, someone's got a better family, someone's got better looks. Instead of that, if you could just go through your friends list in whatever way, and for every name, just leave it at that. Don't go into the profile. Just go name by name. And if you could think of two, three good things about that person. Now, if it's a close friend, the encounters, the memories, the experiences, the traits, because you know the person better. If it's someone not as close to you, then of course, the encounters or the deeds that the person did or the times you did meet. Or with someone who's probably not known in the case of Facebook, sometimes it's just someone you add because it's three degrees of separation. If it's just a thought or two, which is good about the person, I just feel it is liberating because first of all, you can use it as a list of people and an order to go by, as opposed to just think of someone or think of 10 people. This is just there. And if depending on the length of your list, you can go through 10 people a day and just have a few good thoughts because it automatically takes away what the algorithm rewards Facebook for, which is the negative thoughts, which is you want to see someone do badly, but you also are jealous of someone doing well. But if you could just use the resources that the Facebook friends list provides to you and have these moments in a day where you go through 10 people, 20 people, whatever gives you, um, whatever time you have for, but also whatever doesn't drain you and have those moments with that person's name and the association and the memories and the relationship and the things and the experiences that, that, that brings in your head positively, I think that will change. And it's something I've been thinking about, will change your thought process and not just run to the first thing, which is a threat that a person um, brings to your life or a sense of insecurity or a sense of lack of self-worth or inadequacy. But however that person thinks of you, whether they have a good time with you or bad time with you, or they are no longer your friend, or they might've said something shit about you, irrespective of that, do it for yourself and use it as a kind of opportunity and a moment in your day to kind of just go through these names and think of three, four good things, good experiences, good times, uh, good traits about that person. And trust me, I think it'll change your life. So that's one little thing I wanted to share with you. And let me get on to today's guest because Josh Meisner is someone who I had a really fun time chatting with, a person who helps train teams in the mobile networking space. He's someone who's taken a good hard look at himself and the world around him and what is important to him and his family and what is important to him as his family with the way he looks at the internet, consumption, attention, and social media again. But in today's chat, uh, Josh and I discussed the things that are important to enjoy this thing we call life through the vessel we have, which is our mind and body. We talk about soft skills, which have been named in, in 
I think, unfair way. And we talk about life skills. What are the things that help us get through life at different stages and navigate the different phases and make this journey as enjoyable, as, I think, intimate in the ways it needs to be, as fun in it, in the ways it needs to be, and as memorable as we can make it. So I'm sure you will enjoy listening to this conversation. Josh has a lot of wise things and um, nice stories to share. So enjoy it as much as I did. And thank you, as always, for being a part of the Soapy Rao Show. And uh, yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Josh Meisner. Cheers. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. You know, it's lovely to be here. And that, that voice, that recording in progress, so aggressive. Yeah. Like every time I enter a Zoom class and it says that, I'm like, ah. I suppose they've been burnt enough because they didn't say it um, substantially enough. And people are like, I didn't hear it. And I felt violated. My trust felt violated. <laughs> you know, so now they're like, we said it in the most clear way possible. If you didn't pick it up, then there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Whoa, too far Zoom. Now I feel intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> I just told you like the auto AI, which is trying to join us, right? It's almost like this, this person who's, who's trying to join our date and they keep coming up to the table and they're like, can I, can I, can I pull up my chair? And you're like, no. <laughs> and when I, when I threw it out of the meeting, Zoom's like, are you sure? Should you want us to report this person? I'm like, no, I don't report this person. It's, it, oh, do you, do you think we, um, you know, we, we have this AI fear of AI right now with whatever happened with Sam Altman and, him being thrown out and taken back and with because of some fear of a brand new form of AI coming on uh, and being um, unleashed to humanity, unleashed on humanity. Do, do you think there's, we're recreating an online world in our own image or is it slowly slipping away from us, the control? Wow, what a perfect question for, I mean, the timing could not be better, honestly. Just last night, I was in. Um, I was having a holding a virtual class, and we were talking specifically about online personas and the persona you present online, and how easy it is to manipulate that versus when you do it in a face-to-face context. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have been manipulating their persona for as long as humanity's been around, but when you have technology stepping in making it easier well that just changes everything and so last night as we were talking about all of this and um we we started bringing up issues of, of ai and where that's taking us and it reminded me of something that i heard a very very long time ago and this was probably around i want to say 2007 this was like the rise of Twitter. Nobody had heard of Twitter yet. I, I'm not nobody, but most of my students anyway hadn't heard of Twitter. And I, I thought I was so technologically savvy because here I am talking about social media. And um, anyway, one thing that I heard, and I don't even remember where I heard it, but I've been saying it ever since, is that one, we are educating students for jobs that don't exist yet. Mm. And we're meant to prepare them for those jobs. And two, nobody knows what the world is going to look like in five years time, in three years time. And yet everybody's trying to predict where it goes. And one of the things that shot or 
didn't shock me, but it's um, inspired me to do a lot of the research and the writing and that I've done and my TED talk and everything is, you know, we're so busy focused on the future and what it can do for us and all the the beneficial things that come with these tools because I mean they're pretty amazing. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, benefits are astounding, but we're forgetting about right now. We're so focused on the future that we're forgetting to take care of what's happening around us right now. And so um, one of the the alarms that I've been sounding is that we need more balance. We need to make sure that we're taking a moment to appreciate what what's happening here and now and not to be so focused on the future or on technology that we end up missing the the beauty of life as it's happening right in front of us. You know, I, 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 I find that a really, really strong and important message. Um, but just for a moment now, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because, if, you know, I go back to my schooling days in the 90s and um, it was, I wouldn't say pre-internet, but it was like the birth of, you know, we had the personal computers and very slow um connectivity and then I, I kind of through my um years in school and uh, university i saw the especially from an accessibility point of view i saw it from my mom reading out to me on cassette tapes to then getting a um a digital kind of a software like jaws to um be installed on my computer to, to, to the laptop the portability and then the smartphone so that's kind of covering 20 years um but did, did are we do you think we ever are um digitally or non-digitally were we ever willing to kind of be in the present because i feel while the education system as you said that we're creating we're educating kids and young adults for jobs that don't exist anymore so while they don't have an idea of the future they kind of send you into a you know in, in, into a bit of a panic about the future right they always tell you like okay you know when you're in your fourth or fifth grade, especially here in India, they're like, are you ready for your entrance exams in the 12th, right? Which is when you uh, are prepping for the equivalent of SATs. Or, or yeah, Look, I know that you're in first grade now, but have you thought about what you want to be when you graduate? Yeah, have you <laughs> saved enough to start a family, right? <laughs> and so they put all these fears and this this anticipation of what it's to like going to be like when you grow old or when you're older than what you are. But yet the system that they are, that you're presently and isn't equipped to teach you with the skills you need, because it's not about how much you aced in your algebra or your maths test, but it's the, the skills and the tools that allow you to adapt with the changing time. So in one way, they scare you about the future, but in the other most important way, they don't prepare you for the future. Mm -hmm. It's a double-edged sword. It really is. And that's why my approach to educating has always been, um, I mean, I, I, I hate using this analogy because it's so overused, but it's true. The whole, um, <clears throat> you know, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach him to fish and he'll um, eat for a lifetime. I've always kind of taken that approach. And in fact, just today, I was talking with the, the leaders that I'm working with here in Guatemala, training them. I said, you know, I can teach you how to use everything. It, it'd take forever. <laughs> but I think I would rather teach you how to learn 
teach you where these tools are, who to talk to, how to talk to them, what you're looking for. And really what I want to focus on is the human element. How are you going to interact with the people that are important around you? Because your job as a leader is to lead people. And so it's not all about teaching the tech stuff. It's more about saying, okay, I need to be able to equip you to where when you enter a situation that I don't know exists yet, that you will have everything that you need to think your way through it, to think critically, to analyze it, to, <clears throat> to rally people around and say, okay, team, like we need to get this figured out. And mm -hmm. here's how we're going to approach it. You need to be the one who's giving the pep talk you know, when people are feeling overwhelmed because there's just so much to think about. You're the one that's going to calm them down and to bring some order and some rational thought back into that situation. And so a lot of, a lot of students have told me in the past, you're not teaching a, a communication class. You're not teaching an organizational theory class. You're teaching life skills. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing because, you know, I, I can teach you the technical part that's going to be obsolete in a year's time anyway. And then <laughs> you're, you're not getting your money's worth. <laughs> yeah, if you're lucky. Things are moving so fast that, like, I had a student the other day in a class where I was, I showed a video and it was a very poignant video, powerful. Most of the students are like, oh my God, that, that's really making me think. And this one student actually goes, how old was that video? And I stopped for a second. And I said, uh, I think it was three years old. And he's like, yeah, because some of that info is outdated, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. That's what you took from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's just i mean three years really is so ancient bad. history in this generation right yeah it, it is like that's, that's yeah. the oldies right there but to your question about um have people always been distracted or you know have they always been kind of thinking about the future that is an excellent question because um what's happened and i'm trying to give you the cliff's notes the shortened version of this uh because i can get excited and i'll stop talking forever but no, please get excited um, because this yeah. really interests me. And it's <laughs> something which I think is essential for people listening in in every age group, right? Because it kind of determines yeah. where we're going with all this. Yeah, I, and I've honestly given, I've talked about this with people of all ages and everybody takes something from it. So throughout the human history, there's been um, four, maybe five revolutions in communication. And every single one of those was triggered by some technological leap forward that just radically changed the way that we interact with one another and the way we share information. And so the first one was the written language. So it, it took us from being this purely oral society that just, it, we did everything verbally. Um, you, you gave somebody your word, shook hands on it. That was that, that was a binding contract. Um, but as soon as writing came into play, like, suddenly what you say isn't just this ethereal thing that disappears as soon as the sound goes away. Now you have it written down and it's there for as long as that thing is written down. Mm -hmm. 
And so that really changed things. That took away the power of somebody's word and it suddenly gave more power to a written contract um, or written laws and things like that. But it also allowed people to like record history. That's kind of important and be able to go back and reread things and remember things. So then that was about, depending on where you look in the world, that was anywhere from like 5,000 to 10,000 years ago. I mean, it was all over the place. The next revolution happened um, around the time of the printing press. So we're talking like, um, I think it was 12th century Korea, but that it didn't really catch on that well. They were kind of isolated. But the one that really caught on was the one in 15th century Europe, Gutenberg. And that radicalized everything because suddenly you're not just you're not relying on monks with their beautiful calligraphy to copy everything. It's like, okay, here's this document. When can I get it back? Uh, check back with me in about five years time. Um, all of a sudden you got this printing press that can just crank out copy after copy. And you, now you're sharing information, you're increasing literacy rates, you're driving education. And so the, the distance between the first two revolutions was roughly, I don't know, uh, 4,000 years or so. I'm not a mathlete, so I'm doing it in my head. <laughs> but uh, the next revolution was really a series of smaller revolutions. It happened within the Industrial Revolution. I just said revolution three times in one sentence, and that bothers me. <laughs> I'm constantly editing my head, but... Yeah. Uh, so, it, so that started in the mid-1800s and went all the way up to, I think, the, the agreed-upon end of that one is probably around the invention of um, the transistor, so about early 1970s. Right. So over that period, like, so many inventions came out. So it's like the almost 5,000, then it's like yeah. 1,500, and now it's like 150. So it's like reduced. Yeah. yeah You're crazy. shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And it's because of the efficiency of sharing information and ideas. The, the better we got at sharing that widely with people, the faster the innovations kept flooding in. Mm. And so um, we paused for a bit from the early 1970s until the early 1990s. Mm. Um, you know, roughly a period of 20 years, we paused, we rested. <laughs> and um, it's probably one of the more peaceful periods in modern history in terms yeah. of uh, that revolution. But uh, it was when the World Wide Web hit the public and the dot-com boom happened. That was what it was like, just giving this shot of nitrous mm. in, into everything that we were innovating. And next thing we know, um, what really happened, at first everyone was thinking, it's computers that are driving this. And then they said, no, it's, it's more the internet that's driving this. And now that we're, we've had some time to think about it, we're looking back and saying, it was neither of those things, but it was both of those things. Mm. It was the convergence of all of the different kinds of technology that we have. And as we're generating these ideas saying, well, what if we removed a phone from the cord and plugged into the wall and we put it in your pocket? Like, what would that do? Oh, now that we've got this phone, what if we combine that with the internet? What would that do? And so the combination of all of these different technologies has created these new possibilities 
that that make it to where something like chat gpt becomes a very realistic possibility and it's no longer thinking about ai like <laughs> watching arnold schwarzenegger and the terminator yeah but it's yeah. more like you know it's honestly not as scary as i thought it was going to be i thought it was going to be all big and like bulky but chat gpt isn't nearly as intimidating as arnold and um <laughs> he, he can write a paper for me and that's kind of cool <laughs> yeah so i mean every single time we've had these revolutions there's been winners and losers so yeah. the printing press for example um the winners were you know the folks who started making money off of books and education and teaching literacy to people um of course martin luther was a big winner there because he got his way and then the losers of course like the monks doing that beautiful calligraphy are sitting back going bro yeah. like where'd all the work go How, what Train my die life with this. anymore yeah <laughs> <laughs> is yeah. there still calligraphy yeah there's still calligraphy steve jobs even admitted to having studied it in college and it was one of his biggest inspirations for starting apple mm. ironically but um every time that the attention shifts from one thing to another um the, the folks who lose out are the ones who refuse to adapt they they don't want to change they want to keep making bibles out of calligraphy good for them you know you're that's great if that's your choice but um you have to be prepared for the big loss that comes with it because people don't want it anymore they've moved on to um comic sans and times new roman on a screen rather than the beautiful work you're creating you know this this thing you mentioned a few minutes back with um, your the, the team of leaders you're working with at in Guatemala and also the, st the students you worked with which were the life skills that they mentioned so we we keep hearing these these things in the concepts of life skills right but they i mean could you possibly uh, be more specific of some of the skills you're talking about but um to start with that you mentioned how you approach the team of leaders and you said learning right i don't want to teach you what to do but i want to teach you how to learn and i find that um a very important yet um something that's looked down upon in by by a lot of people at a certain after a certain age because we encourage uh, students to learn when you're a student uh but once you're no longer a student you shouldn't show weakness you shouldn't show that you don't know and in some way that defeats the idea of learning because idea uh, learning does display vulnerability does display a lack of not knowing and the willingness to overcome that but not many people are given an opportunity and the ones who do have an opportunity feel intimidated because it's like a sign of weakness in a corporate environment or it's a sign of weakness in a group especially today when you have information at the at your fingertip saying that you don't know or you know and and learning is not always done through a, a course or a certification but it's also done through interaction with other human beings who know more than you so how does mm -hmm. someone navigate that so i would i would love to answer this question with a story um because i well this just happened with the the leaders here that i'm working with mm -hmm. um just within the last few weeks and it was one of those moments 
where it, part of me wishes that somebody had it on video because mm. I would love to revisit this moment over and over and over and over again. But I, I mean, I can because it's in my mind. But anyway, so we're we're nearing the end of this one phase of training. And uh, I've got this group of about 20 or so. And we've been working together for about four weeks. And as we're coming to the end, uh, somebody brings up the fact that oh, Josh is leaving. You're, he's going home for a little while. And then you know, he'll be back for the next phase of training. It's, you know, Thanksgiving and all and family. So what, they started getting a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous because they know that they have to start taking over on their own, like um, doing things without me. And they, I mean, they know that I've always got their back. I'm always supporting them from remotely, but um, it was a little nerve wracking for them. They're, they're uncertain and scared of the future. I don't know where this came from. I really don't. But um, my my inner Chris Farley playing Matt Foley, the motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river, he just came out of me and I I went full motivational speaker. Um, and I, I still don't know why, but it worked. So I said, okay, you guys, um, I want to talk about something and... Um, you know, I, I want everyone to to pay attention to really like take this to heart. So I wanted to make sure I had their attention first because if they're distracted they're, and they only get part of the message, it's not going to be effective. So once I have all their attention and you know, they're committed to it, I said, I want you to think back to your childhood and learning to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, okay, okay. I was like, anybody not know how to ride a bike? Did anybody not go through that? Because if, if not, you won't get this, but... Nobody had, thankfully. I said, I have four kids. They they currently range from 16 at the youngest to nearly 30, which really makes me feel old. <laughs> but um, all four of them, I taught to ride a bike. And all four of them were very different. It wasn't on purpose necessarily, but uh, with my first kid, the almost 31, um, I, I did not want to see him fall. I did not want to see him get hurt. I mean, he's my first kid. I, I'm afraid that if I break him, I'm going to have to send him back. And I didn't, really didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep him. Yeah. And so, um, I, I was like explaining everything. Okay. So downward force on the pedals, make sure the vector is correct on your handlebars and that your wheels are aligned keep pedaling, but lean to one side and the other. you got to keep your balance. I filled his head with enough instructions to build an Ikea bookshelf. Mm -hmm. I mean, this kid is like, his head is swimming with instructions. And of course, he panicked. Mm -hmm. um, he had the hardest time learning to ride a bike because he was just thinking about all of the steps so much. So... It wasn't until after he had learned to ride a bike and I had some time to sit and think about it that I'm like, you know, I probably could have done that with a lot less because as I was thinking about my own time riding a bike, nobody taught me. I just did it on my own. Like I figured it out and I fell a lot. But um, so my, my next kid, I was like, okay, I'm going to back off a little. 
I'm going to kind of let her take over. Well, she's, she was my first daughter and like, I didn't want to break her either. (laughs) You know, she's, she's so fragile and you know, of course she really wasn't um, very, very strong kid, but I did it. I found myself doing it again. And sure enough, it, Pretty much the same thing happened very much thinking heavily about it so there was a gap there between the first two and the last two um a gap of about seven years or so mm-hmm. so when my younger of my two daughters was born and she was getting to that age to ride a bike i thought all right um two strikes i don't want to get a third but i don't want to break my kid yeah. So what I'm going to do is I use less instructions. I'm going to just do everything in my power to hold back and just watch her do it and be there to support her. Right. So I was, and the fact that I was like a helicopter parent side by side with her the whole time, even though I wasn't giving all the instructions, it was just my presence that made her nervous. And it took forever to learn how to ride a bike. Like, I am never going to succeed at this. Well, then luckily I had a fourth kid just to teach this kid how to ride a bike, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, As soon as he learned, you know, he was gone. (laughs) No. Um, So I decided with the last one, I was just going to do exactly what I did when I learned to ride a bike. I mean, not exactly. I wanted to be part of it. So I said, all right, there's the bike. Um, put it on two wheels, turn the pedals, and it's fall. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> mm. And everything in my body is screaming at me, going, "No, you have to go. Like, make sure those training wheels fit correctly. You walk behind him to make sure he doesn't fall." And of course, my wife's behind me, telling me the same thing. <laughs> She's like, yeah. "Don't make, don't let him fall. Make sure he's okay." So, um, I just let him do it. And I watched him fall. And when he fell, like every parent who's ever been through this knows it. Like when he fell, I look away. I'm like, nope. I, oh, what? what? What happened? I wasn't watching. Yeah. Because as long as you're not watching, it's like, um, what is that? The, the Schrodinger's cat paradox. Like if I'm not watching, did, it, did he really get hurt? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Sure enough, he got back up, no tears, nothing. He got back up, got on the bike and tried it again. And so he did this process, like it was only three times or something. And next thing I know, he's riding down the street. He's still got training wheels, but he's riding down the street. I'm like, wow, you really picked that up fast. I go, um, you want to take the training wheels off? He's like, well, why would I want to do that? Oh, because you can go faster. Oh yeah, I want to go fast. So takes him off and he just starts riding. Mm. And I'm just sitting there going, wow, there's something to this element of trust of like explaining it in simple terms, letting people arrive at their own conclusions and making sure that you're there to support them if they need it. So I'm telling my leaders this, right? And I can see the wheels turning in their head. They are clearly soaking this up and uh when i got done with that story i said you all just learned how to ride a bike and you've got training wheels on 
I'm the training wheels, <laughs> mm. but I'm taking off and going home because as much as I love y'all, I love my family more and Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm going home to have some. And when I'm gone, you're going to have to ride. And you know what? You're going to fall. You are going to piss people off. People are going to get mad at you. And you're going to have to take it. You're going to have to help them bring that level back down and, and calm them down. And you're just going to have to keep learning. And here's the thing, though. Our company expects that. You are not punished for that. You are expected to fail because if you never fail, it means you're not taking any risks. It means you're not innovating. And it means that you are just playing it safe the whole time. You're, you've got one foot on the ground and you're not really writing. So I want you to go out there and I want you to give absolutely legendary service to people and blow their minds with how awesome you can be. And if that doesn't work out and people yell at you and they, they mark you down on those surveys after the call or whatever, <clears throat> that's fine. Just learn from it and don't let it keep happening because that's when we have a problem. I feel like it's time to take those training wheels off. We hired you because we trust you because we have faith in you and because we know how badass you are and how you're how able you are to do all of these things that we've trained you to do so get out there and ride mm. and the moment that i said that this room of 20 people who is like all sitting there just staring and, and listening to me intently and I, like that felt pretty good um they erupted into applause. They all came like running to the front of the room and it was a big old 20 person group hug. Like I genuinely had my Rudy moment, like where I'm getting carried off the field. Like, they didn't actually carry me. That would have been cool. But um, it was just one of those moments where it clicked and you realized all of the work that went into setting up this training and all of the work, the tireless long nights of writing and advising and um, answering questions and doing all of that, it paid off because they got it. Right. And the, the best part of it was the following week while I was at home, I, I was like, okay, you know, I, I know I'm not supposed to look at the kid riding the bike and all, because if I look, they, they might fall, but I want to peek in and see how they're doing. And what they were doing was nothing short of amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, like I've never seen that from brand new people that have just gotten out of training before. And I mm -hmm. genuinely feel that it was the confidence that we showed. It was giving them permission to make mistakes and to learn from them so that they don't have that hanging over their heads anymore. But it, just that element of trust, it's so strong. And it is, it's one of those qualities that, you know, they call it a soft skill. And I hate that. I, I hate the term soft skill. Because I know what it's supposed to mean, like the hard skills are like some technical stuff, but the soft skills are anything but soft. They are the firm foundation upon which everything else is built. 
If you yeah. don't have communication, you don't have trust. If you can't demonstrate empathy and compassion, everything else that you do is doomed to fail at that point. So maybe they need to switch places. Maybe the hard skills need to be the soft skills and the other way around. Yeah, because these things are, um, they take different names um, as, as the technology changes or the context changes, but it clearly is a reward and punishment system that's in us for um, for years in the work we do, right? Whether it's build that wall and sculpt that, that stone into something beautiful or make a presentation or handle a customer complaint or whatever it could be. But as we have more of this in the public eye where your punishments are captured and and screen grabs of calls gone bad with you know customer service or say a, a restaurant menus taken a screenshot of and put up online and criticized and or a, an encounter between a waiter and a customer or a police officer and whatever it could be right um mm -hmm. there's this there's this fear of being honest there's a fear of trusting there's a fear of being vulnerable because what happens in that context of that interaction is then being scrutinized by whoever who has no connection to that environment, but brings their bias to it, saying all waiters are assholes, right? Like, because mm -hmm. they just have the power of doing so with a click of a button or yeah. a, a stroke of a few keys. And I find that extremely um, unfortunate because it takes away a human to human interaction or humans to humans mm -hmm. in a, in a certain number because the dynamics do change and they do matter, right? As the number of people grow. And suddenly you have someone who has no vested interest, who's got no context, who's got no reason to be there saying, I'm going to comment because, um, because I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because technology has allowed me to and yeah. I, I have no consequences. <laughs> and I think that's totally unnecessary because mm -hmm. uh, it just, it just, it just gives you a power you don't deserve. Right. No, absolutely. And it, this is one of those things I was talking about with my students last night about how um, in person, when you're interacting with somebody, there's a certain set of filters that we put up. It's automatic out of self-preservation. You know, I don't go up to um, the biggest guy that I can find and I start making fun of his mom like randomly yeah. because bad stuff might happen. Yeah like painfully bad stuff. Yeah. Well, when it's online and we remove that physical threat, what's stopping me? And so those filters, they just disappear. And oftentimes the worst of humanity comes out and it comes out partially because it's been stifled because we've had those filters up. And there's mm. a certain level of dopamine boost that comes with it, that comes with that power of being unnecessarily aggressive. Mm. Um, the problem with it is that when, when people do that and they get the dopamine boost, it's really, I'm not going to say it's exactly the same as doing heroin or something, because that's a lot worse, but that dopamine rush that you get can be addictive. And then all of a sudden you're looking for it again because, it, hey, it feels good to be powerful. It feels good to put other people down and see them get really upset because that gives me power. Next thing you know, they're chasing the virtual dragon and they're seeking out more and more and more. 
until the the line between their face-to-face relationships and virtual relationships kind of disappears. And the more they act this aggressive troll persona online, the more likely they're going to start spilling over into their real world relationships. And then they become a real life troll. And it's, um, it's something that happens so slowly and subtly that it's like that old analogy of like the frog and the boiling water and everything, like it'll jump out. But if you slowly turn up the heat, it'll cook. Um, I don't think that would actually happen. I'm pretty sure the frog would jump out no matter what. Yeah. It would just take longer in the cold water. But, um, It's it's interesting how that happens because it's like um, people just forget how to be human because there's a disconnect that happens with it online. We haven't figured out how to supplement how to fully supplement nonverbal communication online. Sure, we have gifts and we have emojis and text or font treatments and things like that, um, profile pictures. Some and we've even got video now. So um, all of those things are great, but they still they haven't replaced in uh, in person interaction fully, and not until we get smell <laughs> in touch. Um, we're missing out on those senses, and so it lacks that sense of immediacy. And so people will will continue to be kind of awful, or at least more potential to be awful. And I've felt that myself before i probably said things before i wouldn't normally say in person uh but that really comes down to awareness and that's one of the the skills that i really try to develop is um that sense of awareness of here's what i'm saying i am aware of how it's going to impact the person i'm saying it to and anyone else who's around who happens to hear or see that and so I'm going to use my words carefully. There's um, an interesting theory in communication called uh, transactional communication theory that says every interaction that we go into, we view it as a transaction, like mm-hmm. in business, where um, when I interact with, like if I'm interacting with you here on this <clears> call <throat> and I perceive a high value from that interaction, I'm going to get something out of this, you know, whatever that might be, but it's valuable. I am going to be more cautious with my words. I'm going to to think more critically about what I share. When we perceive that value as low, that's when you get the wild Karens and Chads throwing things at cashiers in your local target because they're upset with some return policy. Which, you know, I worked for Target for a time and I've actually seen it happen. I saw someone throw an entire toaster oven at an employee before because they were mad at the return policy. So you don't perceive a lot of value from somebody working a cashier job because they're beneath you or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what we need to do is we need to be more mindful of that tendency and to see each other as humans. In fact, this brings up something that just happened this morning Um, when i came back to guatemala this weekend i brought a bunch of boxes of like branded merchandise because they i wanted to bring it as like prizes for when people answer questions right or they take risks and fail like i want to encourage that so not failure but (laughs) the risk taking um 
but I, I made sure to put together um, a few of those gifts and I gave it to my driver, this driver who has been so gracious to pick me up from the airport every time to um, give me rides to and from the site hmm. to wait so patiently when I had a late afternoon because I had to take care of something. This guy's given up his family time to serve me. So it's the least I could do to serve him back, to, to recognize his humanity. And so I brought him back some gifts. This dude had tears in his eyes. Like this is a former special forces veteran here in Guatemala and like tough as nails. This guy had tears in his eyes because he said, you know, people don't always think about the driver. They, they're so busy and they're thinking about their destination and where I'm taking them that I just kind of become vegetation sitting on the side. It's like, yeah. this means a lot to me. And like that almost brought tears to my eyes because I'm like, why, why don't people see each other as human anymore? You know, why is it? It's the label so of what you do. And yeah. Labeled. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned this idea of um, watching your environment and how that determines the way you speak. Right. Um, but in a, in a chat room or in a, in a, in a system where there are millions of people, but you can't see any of them. Um, you kind of, the, the filters I think are very important. And you know what? It, it's a strange thing because, um, because I can't see where I am all the time, who's around me. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of automatically have to either be, completely rude, irrespective or completely nice. And I think for years, <laughs> the conditioning is like, be nice, you know, don't upset anyone. Yeah. Um, but you know, something funny happened the other day, my wife, daughter and I had gone out somewhere, we got dropped off and I got down to the car and my wife was taking um, our daughter out of the car seat. And um, I took a step back and we have I, I, I bought this old car. And it's it, it looked really nice in that light, right? And I just stood there and mm -hmm. I go, and I thought my wife was next to me with our daughter. I said, doesn't she just look beautiful, this old car? And <laughs> it wasn't my wife, it was some random person who walked by and he must have thought, what a dickhead. He's standing there talking, <laughs> appreciating his car <laughs> and trying to tell anyone who goes by about how good looking his car is. And I genuinely want to tell my wife. <laughs> so I oh, thought of that no. in this context because you know, it's happened to me so many times where just to be polite, um, and, and, and I'm not lying about this, but once um, my wife and I got to, I think Marks and Spencer, she had to buy some stuff. So she said, just wait in this place. I'll go get everything done and come back quickly. Mm -hmm. And I was just standing there. And of course, there's this, I think I'm the, I'm, I'm the, uh, the school of thought where be over nice as opposed to the risk of upsetting mm -hmm. anyone because you're visually impaired, you might need help kind of thing. I come from that mm -hmm. overcompensating era and generation. And I was just like, there's someone next to me and it's impolite of me not to talk to them. And I just have to talk to them. So I'm like, is everything okay? What are you doing over here? Why are you standing here? I mean, not why are you standing here, but you know, what's happening? Like, what are you doing here? Are you yeah. also waiting for someone? And this person is not responding and I'm getting me really upset. And I'm like, what the, why isn't this person, what have I done wrong? <laughs> and it automatically sends me into this feedback loop in my head saying, have I upset them? Have I still, and then my wife's like, who are you talking to? She comes back and I'm like, there's someone next to me and they're not answering. She's like, that's the mannequin, right? You don't have to. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so What a rude mannequin that was. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so it just triggered all these things in my head. I was like, man, I've made such a fool of myself. But 
at the cost of not upsetting people. <laughs> um, but it's a great trade-off, honestly. It really is. Great like, stories. I would rather be a fool and and have fun stories like the time I talked to a mannequin. Yeah, or or, or, or this jackass standing there telling passers by how great his car looks. <laughs> oh, that happened to me the other day too. I got I was getting into an elevator and I was holding um, a piece of cake and it, it was really good cake. And um, the the person who made the cake was with me. She had said something about like, oh, make sure that you eat that before you go home. And as I'm getting in the elevator, I step on someone's foot. And I think that it's the one who made the cake. And I turned to her and I had momentum going into it. And so I couldn't stop myself. Even as I saw that this person was not the person I thought it was, I continued to say, don't worry, anybody who tries to touch this cake is going to lose a goddamn hand. (laughs) And I said it so aggressively. (laughs) And she just looks at me like, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I thought you were someone else. Yeah. I I don't know if that's changed. You know, these these are moments between people, right? Whether it's exciting, whether it's embarrassing whether it's fun whether it's intimate whether it's that group of your uh trainees and you and but these these make it the experience of being human right um whether it's a fight whether it's road rage whatever it may be it's a story you go to another human being but with the introduction of a camera between two individuals with the possibility of recording that and broadcasting it what has it done to the the way we interact as humans, I'm just curious because it takes away that personal touch, whether it's for good or bad, right? I mean, in a, in a bad situation, it's great to have a camera so you can broadcast broadcast it. There's accountability. Um, but where do you draw the line, right? Like with CCTVs, it's for safety. But there's also CCTVs just being used and abused for the mm-hmm. wrong thing. And even cameras where okay you know you're 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 a person in an in, intimidating setting and you want to put on your body camera or whatever camera fine mm-hmm. and that's maybe why it was created for safety but you flip that around and now it just becomes a spy cam where you're trying to spy on anyone to step out of line even for a second unknowingly without the intention of hurting anyone and you come down hard on them or the in, and i like an entity, the internet comes down hard on them, which is a bunch of unrelated, unconnected idiots who have too much time on their hands commenting on everything they're not supposed to comment on. So, yeah, where, yeah where, and and this is something you mentioned on your website, and it really kind of, you know, I, 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 I it stuck out and it captured my um, idea of what's going on. Is this word mediocrity, and and how do you perceive it in this context, and 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 maybe also. Um, with with the interaction with the the content we are observing with the content we are demanding as uh, and I don't want to speak of all of us as a collective because I think there's a lot of unique preferences there's a lot of unique tastes and there's a lot of individuals who do have um a lot of respect for artists and art and for creation and for invention but um a good number who don't mm-hmm. you gave me a lot to work with there and Sorry, I just to had to. It. Yeah, I just it had was to great. get it out of my face. <laughs> yeah, I just, I've got at least three stories in my mind, and I'm like, oh, okay, I may have to pick and choose here. Um, so the first thing that came to mind when you're talking about 
uh, doing virtual communication and then you're putting a, a camera up and how, how has that changed us? The, one of the best stories that I can tell you about this was something that just happened last year and it blew my mind. Like, even though I had had tons of experience in education, probably far more than I should have, um, this still, it was like one of those aha light bulb moments that I didn't see coming. Mm -hmm. So um, COVID hits, everybody goes home. Um, we transitioned to online education and it, it created all sorts of problems because there were clearly organizations that were ready for it and organizations that were most definitely 30 or 40 years behind the learning curve and yeah. <laughs> didn't want to. And so now they were forced to, and they, they kind of sucked at it. Um, so I saw a whole range, but for two years, so from roughly March, 2020 to early 2022, um, every single class that I taught was online. Yeah. And that gave me the freedom to move to a totally different side of the country without interrupting work. I could work from the car if I needed yeah. to. Like, I loved the freedom. Well, what happened in spring of 2022 is I got an invitation to teach my first on-campus in-person course in two years. I said, yes, please get me back in the classroom. You know, there, you can't replace that fully and I, I miss it. So I go back to the classroom with high hopes and energy and I've just, I'm so ready to do this again. And good Lord, what a lifeless, zombified group of people that was. Mm. I mean, I'm using my best material. This is stuff that I have always gotten a laugh from students on or, uh, and, whoa, like that's really mind-blowing to hear about that. I was getting nothing, no reactions. So the fact that this was my first time teaching it, this, I, it was for Chapman University. So I totally different demographic than I'm used to. I'm used yeah. to more of like a community college demographic. And here I am teaching like, like kind of a bougie, much more affluent demographic. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately start, I ascribe it to that. Like, oh, well, it's just because there are all these upper class kids who, who mommy and daddy have a lot of money. And I stopped myself and I was like, wow, Josh, you're being kind of a judgmental prick. Yeah. <laughs> like, it may have nothing to do with that. So after I gave myself a, a good admonishment, I went to social media and I contacted everyone I know who's teaching. And I said, okay, what are you noticing about this return to campus? Like, what is different to you? Every single one of them said the same thing. Oh my God, they're lifeless. They're zombies. They're I can't get them to answer questions. I have to practically threaten them to get them to raise their hands. Mm. And then students are coming and going. They're just getting up in the middle of the class and leaving. And then mm. coming back, like they went to the food machine or something. It's baffling. And that's when it clicked. I said, oh my God, for two years, we've been on Zoom. We've been sitting in front of a computer, lifeless, expressionless. We pause our video to get up and go to the fridge and get a snack. And then we come back because we've got headphones on. We can hear it the whole time. And that's really inconsiderate of you know how to... of not having a pause button on you. 
Yeah, right. Uh, we forgot how to be human in person. Mm. So it, when that realization hit me, I'm like, wow, there's like a paper waiting to be written and I don't want to write it, but <laughs> I do want to talk about it. And so I started talking about it with these students and they're like, you know what? That kind of makes sense. And I hadn't, hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, when I sit there and I'm looking all bored like this, it's the exact same way that I sat at home on Zoom because it's comfortable. I need a kickstand for my head. Mm. It's not that I'm bored. I'm just getting comfortable. So then uh, end of the semester, you know, they, they do their course evaluations. And of course, I don't get them back until well after final grades have been posted because nobody wants to be see a petty professor who yeah, punishes yeah. everyone because they raked him over the coals. But every single evaluation was nothing short of amazing. It's like, oh, thank you for this return to campus. This was exactly what I needed. Mm. I think I even had one student who said, I have just changed my major. I am going to be a professor because I want to be you when I grow up. It's like, nice. damn, like, that's cool. You didn't even have to kiss up. I gave you your final grade. Mm. But um, the next semester that I taught, same university, same class, it was in the fall. So we'd had a summer to kind of re-acclimate in-person interaction. It was totally different. It was back to normal. Uh, they were lively. They participated and just going, okay, that's more like it. But this phenomenon of being in front of a tool that we use for communication and then having that tool shape and mold us, like we fit into the mold of that tool, whatever that might be for better or for worse, we adapt to it. And then we don't always change back so easily. So that yeah. was the first item. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did you? No, I was just, yeah, no, I was just th thinking like that's that, that it's the clear example of what a beneficial tool can do. If, <laughs> if, you know, if it's, if it's over, you know, exposed to us. Right. And I'm, I'm going to quote somebody's very, very wise uncle who sadly passed away with, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and Uncle Ben was right. Like these tools, they have so much power. And when, for example, when ChatGPT was invented, its inventors said, hey, we've got this amazing tool that can help us unlock the mysteries of the universe and it can do all these great things. Oh, and by the way, um, yeah, college students are going to use it to cheat and write papers for them. Like yeah. nobody saw that coming. Yeah. But uh, you've got a benefit and you've got a, you know, a very serious consequence there. And it's all in how we use it. And so if how we use it determines the health and the benefits of that tool, then as educators, we better be teaching things like morals and integrity and critical thinking and decision making, mm. because that is what's going to determine whether humanity ends up becoming its own downfall or we end up on spaceships exploring other planets and yeah, having because, cool stuff. Because the problem is that you can't teach these, um, the, 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 these, uh, the, the things like certification, more knowledge, it's become a given. You can take it and get it anywhere, right? You can get, 
yeah. lectures yeah. like the great course the great courses and learn about the entire history of america or history of india in 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 an audiobook or a youtube um, seminar or whatever's the, the the medium but how do you interpret that or how do you determine because now with um you know misusing chat gpt or being a complete uh, troll online these aren't things that schools um emphasize on right i mean they what they'll do is they'll kick you right. out of the classroom if you're making a mess of it or they'll suspend you or they'll expel you depending on the severity but this this whole thing boils down to power and you mentioned power earlier earlier it was of course uh, and, and there is of course disparity in power there is the the powerful few but with what the internet promised or promises or continues to promise is a decentralization of power in some way right mm -hmm. it's no longer mm -hmm. just the politicians just the oligarchs just the 1% and just the celebrities who have all the power and money but to some extent it's being spread apart and spread to um a lot more other people like a person now can make it as a youtuber or a gamer or a social media influencer on instagram or a tiktoker so in some way the power is the same even when you say i have the power of clicking a like or trashing this person's product or creation or service it's power but how um and earlier you would hear stories of a person getting a lot of power as a result of a lot of money and then going off the deep end abusing that power in whatever form whether it's the dictator or whether it's the mm -hmm. ceo who cheated on his wife or did whatever quote unquote horrendous thing right but now right. with a thousand fans on only fans or with a 100000 followers on instagram you get that sense of power and you see a lot more people wait you've seen a, my only fans um not yet but <laughs> <laughs> i was waiting for after the conversation because i wanted the intimacy yeah. <laughs> before i saw yeah, just yeah. the physical I mean, guys guys got to make a side hustle you know what i mean i love it yeah <laughs> but you see a lot, lot like you would you know you would, we would be critical right sitting having a beer going how could tiger do that to his wife right tiger woods but now you see people with 100 followers on instagram and say like there's a there's a comedian or a musician with like say 1000 followers on instagram and like he gets three dms with people saying a girl saying or whatever his 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 taste is saying would you like to to meet up and the, the temptation when you have power to 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 use that power is in every human being so yeah. what you're saying is essential like you know teaching these things or or, or not even teaching but um you know showing the importance of these things like morality and empathy and compassion but how do you design a system because it takes time right i can't teach you mm -hmm. empathy 101 because it doesn't work like right, that right right it has to start early i mean a lot of people are like oh well where are their parents why aren't their parents teaching them this thing because yeah. you know that's that's an easy answer it's it's an easy way to blame the parents rather than to look at the complexity and the nuance of you know 18 plus years of child rearing mm. um it's so complicated and honestly i just saw an article i think it was in the new york times um i'm gonna have to go find it now but um it said that a new study has shown that parental influence is significantly less than what we think and this is why so many horrible parents end up with great kids <laughs> and so many great parents end up with little monsters because it's 
it's so much more a factor of everything else combined. It's environment, it's media, it's friends, it's school, it's um, so many influences. And parents are just one piece of that. So if we really want to teach things like empathy and compassion and seeing each other as human again, um, it's going to take a radical rethinking of education in general. Yeah. And you brought this up earlier about how um, punishment is stigmatized and uh, you know, we need the right answers and they need to be right the first time. And people are scared of vulnerability, right? Well, there's one fundamental or problem that's driving all of that attitude and actually comes out of the 19th century industrial revolution. Um, it's that we as a, as Western culture do not handle uncertainty. Well, mm. we are freaking terrified of uncertainty. We want things planned and laid out in front of us. We want to know exactly what to expect. And when we don't get that, we freak out. And when we freak out, the rational part of the brain shuts down and then the lizard brain takes over. And the next thing you know, you've got your amygdala that's driving the, the brain bus. And it's not a good driver because mm. it's an angry driver. So we do things that, that we end up regretting later. Yeah. Well, we, we've got to stop looking at education as like, this model of a child's brought into this world as an empty vessel and all of these teachers swoop in to fill the vessel. And once the child's done, you take a test. And if you pass the test, you have worth as a human. And if you don't, well, go figure it out. Mm. You're on your own. Yeah. 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 Um, because everybody that I've ever met has a talent, has a skill, has something amazing about them. Um, and a lot of the time, what's amazing about them is something that education doesn't measure. It yeah. doesn't teach. They, they had to develop it on their own. And why? Because those things are uncertain. You can't measure vulnerability. You can't measure compassion. We haven't figured that out yet. And so if there's not a measurement for it, and you can't, what? <laughs> you can't create a multiple choice quiz yeah. to pass it and suddenly say, yeah, I've got empathy. Um, you have to wrestle with it and it's uncomfortable and it's hard and we don't like that. <laughs> we would much rather avoid it, call somebody a name end the relationship and walk away because that's easy. Mm. But like I've been with my wife for 22 years and Everyone's always like, oh, congratulations. That's so awesome. Or you two are so cute together. I'm like, you have not seen us because for most of those 22 years, we have been clawing and scratching at each other. And we have been not actually, this is figurative. Yeah, I know you <laughs> but, have to. Um, I'm glad yeah. you put that disclaimer out there. Yeah, exactly. You know, he claws his wife. My God. Internet thing. Yeah, <laughs> well, some people's kinks are different. But, um, yeah, we've, we've fought a lot. And like my kids even comment on it sometimes. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired of the fighting. And I look at them and I'm like, okay, listen, we fight in front of you guys because we want to show you how to fight. <laughs> we want to show you that you can 
be respectful during a fight, that you can continue to fight until you come to a compromise and an arrangement or an agreement. And then you make up like when I grew up, my parents didn't fight in front of us, which did not prepare me for marriage. (laughs) And not just fighting, fighting starts from a conversation which goes out of control or it Mm -hmm. it escalates, right? But the other opposite is we don't even talk. And then suppress, suppress, oh. suppress. Mm-hmm. And that makes you terrified of confrontation. And the next thing you know, the moment something comes up, you you either walk away or you burst. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, this ties back to what you were saying earlier about the person who gets a lot of money and then they're suddenly like doing all these horrible things. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, there's scholarship on that that says that, um, oh, I think it was I can never pronounce his name right. Paolo Freire? Freire? Anyway, he wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Okay. And in this book, he talks about how um, if a people are oppressed for a long time and then eventually overcome it and they become leaders, they, they get control, they get power, that they will turn into the oppressed or the oppressors mm-hmm. because that's all they know. Yeah. That's the only model they've ever had of leadership. And nowhere is that more true than in higher education, because professors out there who are total arrogant blowhards, who in, seem to enjoy inflicting pain and misery on their students, they're not bad people. They just didn't have a better role model. So yeah. they think that's normal. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. That's how it looks. And, and doesn't uh, that though come from a home that. situation? Sorry, just for a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. When you you said parenting doesn't have the influence that people say it it's it mm-hmm. does, but doesn't it? When you see your parents, uh, when you said you and your kids talk about you fighting, but when you talk to them about what you're doing or why you're doing that, when your wife and you are doing that, or in my case, or, but if mm-hmm. if you're as a kid stonewalled and not explained to. Or whatever you witness as a child, like the, the the way your parents are, the way your parents aren't, or the way they speak, or the way they um, speak to the you know staff at home, or whether they speak to their employers or employees, don't these things have a much more um, bigger impact from say from the moment the child is born to the time they go to school um, than um, you know than how their um, I mean, of course, this this takes takes into account environment, which is the home, which is the people in the home, which is the parents. And I think, I feel, I think that's something which is a huge impact, right? Because by the time you go meet your friends, you already have this in your head, the way you speak to people around you, people perceivably below you, above you, your elders, your stronger ones, your more powerful ones. But all those, I think, of course, unless the, the kid comes out of the thing, uh, com- comes out into life watching movies, but which I, you know, can try avoiding. Um, I feel, yeah, that 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 thing is so much of what we um, take on later in life. Like when I look back to when I was five or six, I don't remember before that. Maybe mm-hmm. there is a lot of what happens around me which I pick up on the tone which people around me spoke in, the the way they spoke to each other, the way they spoke the, the, in escalations and encounters, and, and that is in a lot of ways stuck with me, even though in many ways I try to educate it out of my system. Right. That, this is something I've actually studied pretty extensively because when oh, I, I can't remember what age I was, I want to say it was super early, like nine or 10. I, I had this 
like epiphany moment and I can't even explain it, but I, I dream, I woke up from the dream. I remembered it as being like, I was older. I was a father. Uh, I had a really happy family and everything. And I remember thinking at that moment, like my number one goal in life is to become a dad. Like, mm. What kind of kid thinks that at nine or 10? Um, but I did. And I became a father at 19. I got married right out of high school, which I don't recommend to anyone. Uh, <laughs> that one, that marriage did not go so well. But um, anyway, I, it was just, I had such a desire to be a father that by the time I did become one, I, I wanted to soak up as much information as I could on what it takes to be a great father. Mm. And so I threw everything I had to do. I was obsessing over it. Um, to the point where, you know, there was a few times like the bike riding story that I recognized I was being a bit of a helicopter parent. And so I needed to back off because I knew that can create lots of problems as well. Well, as I started researching fatherhood and everything and talking to more fathers in this research, um, I found that there's there was really two types of outcomes from childhood from influence from your parents you either strive to be just like them mm. whether that's consciously or subconsciously or you strive to be anything but like them yeah. and that can be for better or for worse as well and i i've met equal measures of both which mm. just fascinates me i don't know still what that trigger point is that that flips the switch into i am going to be a great person because my parents are assholes mm. <laughs> or yeah, i want to be just like my parents yeah uh, the just like my parents that's much more common or at least people talk about it more but, but it's the flip. The, it, right. the flip is just it's so interesting what causes that but yeah the the influences are there's so so many of them and it's just this super complicated web of influence that it's hard to be able to tell which one is greater. And even if you do figure that out, the second you go look at another family, it's going to be different. So it's yeah. very, very unpredictable. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's such a, it's such a fine balance, right? Like I, I and, and, and I'm not even now trying to put this in perspective of, um, your kids or my kid. It's just that in your, your own life, when you look at the things that, you know, sometimes as far back as you can possibly remember without bias, mm -hmm. is it's, you know, and this is without, um, and these are real memories, right? And I can only imagine now with, um, you know, the, 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 the experiences being broken down into 30 second uh, bite-sized consumable bits or 49, 50 second bits. Like, you know, for instance, just, just last evening, I was having a beer and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go through some reels. Um, and literally five minutes later, I've probably gone through whatever, five minutes, a lot of reels, right? <laughs> and none of them stuck. Did they make me smile? Some of them did. Um, did it frustrate me? Not as much as I thought, but then I go back to what I typically do, which is put on my audiobook and listen and have a beer. And, and you know, the difference was 
one was so-called more engaging because it was made to engage me more. It was a person putting that entire thing into that one minute, the way it was packaged, the way it was so-called meant to be done, right? There's a certain science to Instagram reels. And the other was a story Mm -hmm. being told by a human being, of course, read out by another human being and both through technology in the most amazing, quickly delivered way. And I'm not trying to put my bias of a 40-year-old into this, but I found myself less less stressed when I was listening to the book. Mm. I was not I was not on edge. And and I can't put the word edge as like, oh, I'm a you know, as as a definition, but it, there's a feeling of restlessness when you're watching the reels. And that's not there when you're mm. listening to a book. Right. No, you're you're absolutely right. And one thing that this brings up for me is um I was I was doing a, a study on creativity because I was I was going through a phase where I wanted to get to the bottom of creativity. Like, how do you generate it? How do you foster it? Um, And whatever, because I had read some book and I was, I just often running with it. Well, in this reading, the thing that shocked me more than anything else is that one of the biggest precursors to, to creative thinking, that, that state of flow where suddenly you're, you're, juices are going and you're like man i'm like in the zone now doing my best writing or doing my best art or whatever um it's always preceded by boredom and Mm. that is mind-blowing to me because what is it that we avoid the most anymore it's the discomfort that comes with boredom i mean you see it everywhere and reading about this i'm like okay boredom huh so i'm gonna start paying attention and seeing what people do when they're bored so Mm. i'd go to the grocery store and i would just stand there and kind of like creepily watch people (laughs) coming up to the the checkout line and it was like i could hit a stopwatch predictably and they'd get up to the line and it was like less than seven seconds after getting in the line into the pocket for the phone it's like automatic it was so predictable and so then i I thought okay let's experiment with this a little bit and i decided to use my students because i mean what is a classroom if not for a bunch of guinea pigs absolutely so (laughs) i said and i told them about this and they said okay i want to try a little activity here because we happen to be talking about um mindful awareness and vulnerability at the time and like self-awareness and I said, this is all going hand in hand with that. Uh, I mean, if you don't want to try, you don't have to, but I would encourage you to. I said, your task over the weekend is to find some time to go spend an hour alone, period. Nothing else, no phone, no book, no music, no pets, no nothing. Literally you sitting for an hour or walking like you can go for a walk too but you're not allowed to interact with anything outside your head mm. it's just you and then you know somebody's like well what if i have to go to the bathroom okay interact with the toilet that's fine like <laughs> don't do what piss you yourself do. yeah <laughs> yeah that, that would ruin things pretty fast yeah and make you cold but um after the warmth of course yeah but <laughs> it, so. Another student raises 
his hand and, and he's just he's sitting there so patiently with his hand raised while I'm talking and trying to get these thoughts out so I finally get done I was like all right what do you got for me and he just lowers his hand and so nonchalantly he goes why do you hate us so much <laughs> always stuck, stuck out to me but I said look I'm going to be doing it too because I'm never going to ask you to do it anything that i wouldn't be willing to do myself and so yeah. i'm going to do this and then when we come back next week we all get to report on it and yeah. if it didn't work and it's total failure hey you're going to get credit for it anyway because it's one of those activities it's just participation points so um i will admit it was incredibly difficult and i thought it was going to be easy because i tend to like time alone it was difficult. Like I had those phantom vibrations going in my pocket and I kept looking for my phone and going, Oh my God, like how much longer now? Oh, 59 minutes. Cool. Yeah. So, um, when we all came back the next week, the same student that asked, you know, why do you hate us so much was just sitting there silently the whole class and everybody's like sharing their thoughts. They're talking about how amazing it was, how, creative they felt afterward which i was like ding 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 i didn't tell them about creativity by the way they just mm. happened to mention how creative they felt so mm. then i'm still waiting i'm still waiting and finally things get quiet and normally when things get quiet in a classroom again if i start a stopwatch 10 seconds is about the max silence most people can take without breaking it and like having to do something else so we're just sitting there and I'm looking at the clock on the, the wall behind the students in the very back of the room. And I'm like, okay, we're, we've hit like 20 seconds now and I'm feeling the discomfort. Mm. The one student finally raises their hand and said, yeah, go ahead. I, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> and what they said was so profound that it still sticks with me to this day. In fact, I've incorporated it in my books and everything and with permission of course and uh they said that the thing that i found while doing this is that if i can't be alone for an hour with my own thoughts how can i expect anybody else to and i was like okay who has my rubber stamp because you just got an a for the entire course in fact come back and teach it next semester because i'm quitting i can't top that like that was just amazing mm. and it, it's so true like why can't we spend a, an hour alone with our own thoughts what is it that we're so afraid of that we don't want to be alone with our thoughts so i asked my wife to do it and she said no like there was no amount of convincing i could do for her she just said no so I continued doing this with students and the link to creativity was constantly there because like you were saying, what you're watching reels and everything's all fast paced, you don't have time to think. You don't have time for your brain to digest and process it through memory consolidation and all of that. It's just going too fast. But when you're listening to a podcast, when you're taking your time and doing something slowly, our brains actually have a chance to run it through the dishwasher and put the dishes away in the, the old thought cupboard over there. 
and hang on to those memories. And it feels more fulfilling because it is, because you are creating lasting memories. I mean, do you remember the reels that you were watching? In <laughs> fact, sometimes I, 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 in a social situation, I'm like, um, you know, you know, you, you, you laughed at some reel and you try to recollect what that reel was and you just can't unless yeah. you watched it like multiple times. But if there's a joke from say, you know, Robin Williams or Billy Connolly's audio mm -hmm. CD or the special I watched many years back, like this guy, I, I can remember the joke um, yeah. or the, you know, or, or, or any story, which, you know, it, it, um, I think, as you said, put the dishes away kind of thing is a nice analogy because it's almost like while you're listening, like I'm listening to an audio book right now, which is set in Memphis, no, it's set in, set in Mississippi and it's 38 hours long. And um, granted, you know, there've been moments where I press play and I put the headphones on and I wake up eight hours later and a lot of the chapters have gone by. <laughs> that happens. But yeah, the you know, while you're listening actively or passively, because that's what some people do, you can still daydream, right? You can still immerse yourself in that story. Mm -hmm. You can still um, take that story into your context. And I think that's not boredom, but it's, it, it, it is the beauty of that creation, right? Because when I listen right. to that book, I've never been to Mississippi, but I can kind of as um, in my own realm, visualize what those characters are doing, whether they're walking, what they look like, what the airfield where the plane landed looked like. It's it's giving you the license to build off what the author or the creator has done. And there's absolutely no scope of that when it's forced down your throat in the most heavily packaged way in 35 seconds. Yeah, I use I use the word boredom because people get it. Yeah. But that's the wrong word. It's yeah. actually not the word that they use in the research either. They use um, ennui. But you mentioned ennui, and like most people are like, huh? is yeah. that a, is that like a new um, erectile dysfunction medicine yeah. or something? No, it's not. <laughs> that no, is, I like boredom. Ennui is yeah. <laughs> ennui is just it's the dissatisfaction or discomfort that we get when we feel unoccupied. Yeah. We're not engaged with anything, and we the brain suddenly like starts kicking and screaming to do something. And if we don't have anything to do, it will take over. And that's why those ideas start to bubble up. And I always ask people, where do the best ideas come from? What are you doing when the best ideas come? And without fail, it's always the shower, doing the dishes, sitting on the toilet, um, going for a walk and listening to music right before bed i'm like what do all of those have in common you're not doing anything that requires a lot of brain power you are if you're doing the dishes or taking a shower you're doing a single function task and your brain isn't processing anything else so it allows those connections to be made and um that's when you start winning every single argument in the shower that like you wish you could do in real life because the best lines always come up at that point. Yeah. So we need to find ways to foster that, to slow down. And I'm not, I'm not going to be like technophobe here and say like, kill your TV, throw your phone in the garbage. I love my phone. I work for a cellular company. <laughs> <laughs> They're great. Yeah. Could I live without it? 
maybe, but do I want to find out? No, not really. Um, it's all about balance. It's about being able to set aside that time once in a while, just so that you can take back control over your, your yeah. attention span, over your thought process, so that you're not just mindlessly walking from one thing to the next. So that when you're in the grocery store checkout line and seven seconds have passed, you don't reach for your phone, but rather you continue to people watch because mm. people are kind of fascinating. Or yeah. maybe you're reading the tabloids and going, okay, what's the British royal family doing now? <laughs> but, and, you know, I do that. I, I, yeah. I find that fascinating because I think now with technology, you know, I, I sometimes I'm waiting for someone or I'm sitting somewhere alone or, and I put on my, my, my pods but I'm not listening to anything. I'm just, I'm eavesdropping, right? Because <laughs> I have the right image of someone who's engaged in the virtual yeah. world, but I'm actually like, hmm, what is this? And, and my, my wife can tell, right? Because my head just slowly starts going towards the conversation. She's like, stop doing that. It's like, whether we're at a restaurant and she's like, stop doing that. You're listening to the table next to us. I'm like, oh, damn it. She, she can tell, she can see the tells. <laughs> she's but, like, you're staring with your ears. Yeah, Knock I'm, it off. That's absolutely what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a beautiful thing. You know, when, when I was uh, looking into this thing of time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, people call it different things, that when you give your body a break from food for somewhere around 12 to 14 hours, it starts rejuvenating, right? I think they call it autophagy. Yeah. There are different processes that kick in where the stem cells start growing, repair starts. Like if you say eat dinner at seven by five hours later, which is midnight, the food is digested. But from midnight to say 10 a.m. the next day, the gut is repairing, the body's doing all sorts of things. And I could be wrong with the um, the time, but it's somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. But imagine if we did the same thing for our brains and our emotions by mm -hmm. giving that fast from the phone or from- Yeah, it's uh, amazing. Yeah. It really is. And I one of the- very first things like things that I heard about that gave me the idea in the first place to take off like this weekend detox or whatever. Mm. Uh, one of my professors was telling me about this time that he had visited a Buddhist monastery and he had taken part in this weekend retreat where he shows up on Friday. And once, once dinner is served on Friday, everyone goes silent. And there's no communication until, yeah, but Pasana, thank you, until Sunday night. He said that it was it was really weird, really uncomfortable. It was hard for him to, to hold back and not speak, but it got easier. And mm. by Sunday, it was like effortless. And then he said that when they served dinner, he fully expected people to just burst like the dam, you know, and the water's gushing forward. He said, nobody was in a hurry to start talking and it was just like easing into it and the moment that people started talking he said at least half the table just broke down into tears mm -hmm. because it was such a moving experience and i'm like i would love to experience an emotion like that just by talking mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's, that sounds pretty powerful it does i haven't yeah. done it yet but yeah, it's. I'd love um, to try that as well. I don't know because the thought of it is much more terrifying than the reality. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of these situations, I think that's the case, right? You're like, what if 
I, I, you say I can't eat for the three days, just drink only water? Yeah, uncertainty, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The discomfort of uncertainty is what prevents us from doing so many things. But as a lot of the examples, I think the stories, um, the anecdotes that you've told me and you shared with us today, I think that is such a key thing. And it's like we spoke about life skills. I think we can just wrap up with identifying a few of them, like learning um, with the ability to, to display vulnerability or, for instance, uncertainty and um, what what you can glean from uncertainty, right, which is trust in your in, in, in yourself, like when, when you're uncertain, who do you look to look to yourself or this idea of boredom. And I didn't get the word you mentioned, which people use for boredom, but these are such things which go unnoticed, right? It, it's discounted even, even by, by educators or by certifiers or by seminar coaches, right? Then no, no one says, okay, today you spent $200 on, on this online program. Let's be, just do nothing. <laughs> no one tells you that because it's seen as inadequate, right? Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't get a lot of people signing up at yeah. all ever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it, one other characteristic would be resilience. Because mm -hmm. if learning is going to be one of those characteristics and you're going to constantly try to learn, well, then you are going to fail and you're going to have to develop resilience so that you can bounce back from it and continue to learn. Because way too often, somebody fails, somebody screws up, and then it's just like, okay, that's it. I give up. I'm yeah. moving on because I'm a failure. And um, resilience is kind of like, I see it as, it's kind of like our own way of self-forgiveness, of, of giving ourselves room to screw up mm. and forgiving ourselves and moving on. And forgiveness is one of those characteristics, too, that yeah. I think our society is in a very dangerously short supply of. And, yeah. you know, we could talk for another hour at least about cancel culture and forgiveness. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to say on that, too. But yeah, those all of these, quote unquote, soft skills, you know, we have to start looking at them for what they are. And we, they are the foundation that we build everything else on. And if that foundation's shaky, then it's going to crumble. It's just a matter of time as to when. And that's when you can make statements like AI is going to take over humanity because you give it a <laughs> chance to. Because otherwise, essential skills mm -hmm. will prevent um, the abuse, the misuse, of a few to control the many, right? Right, right, exactly. If it will give that a foothold to take over, and then before we know it, machine learning will pick up where we left off, and it will start developing empathy. Yeah, <laughs> and then we'll be like, "Hey, you yeah. switched places here." Yeah, <laughs> that would be nice, right? To have kind machines <laughs> walking around with you. Yeah, yeah. and you're this this like Big Hero Six. <laughs> <laughs> you're devoid of emotions but the machine's like now's the time to smile now's the time to hold hands <laughs> are you doing okay today yeah. <laughs> do you need a hug because by then we all want to be 150 with botox in our faces and we want to have the longest lives without any emotion and we're just like okay machine tell oh, me how wow. i'm supposed to feel <laughs> 
I'm going to quote Ricky Bobby here and say, no, I think I could live to about 295, maybe 300, given the medical science and the fact that I have a lot of money. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I love that movie too much. It's been such a lovely conversation, Josh. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all your stories and your experiences with your students and uh, all the knowledge that you've gained by learning for yourself. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to do it because these conversations, they don't happen too often anymore. <laughs> I mean, they happen with me in the mirror, but the guy in the mirror is kind of an asshole. So <laughs> you're not, and I appreciate that. Thank you. I think that's the best compliment I've got. <laughs> <laughs> you're not an asshole. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, yeah. I, it, you know, sometimes that's a bigger compliment by, by saying you aren't something. And I think that uh, goes yeah. again. That's another skill. In the in the land of, how's the oh, oh I can't remember the quote, but anyway, when everyone else around you is an asshole, then yeah, <laughs> nice. No, guys when everyone else generally is, seem great, yeah. When, when everyone else is so like that's exactly what's relevant in today, right? When everyone is just kind of going with, um, this flow, which is not really a flow, but with going with the grain. Again, it, by mm -hmm. not doing it, you're really making a much bigger statement than you uh, get credit for. Yeah, moving against the zeitgeist. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I think we definitely need to, to have this chat again in a few weeks yeah. or a month, a few months about forgiveness. And I think that's such an important thing because we're getting more and more, mm -hmm. you know, obstinate and accusations are flying. And Yeah, so I'd love to talk yeah. to you soon and um, good luck with everything going forward. And yeah, um, yeah stay in touch. Thank you. Yeah. Up next on the menu, compassion and forgiveness. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Coming up soon. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.